Amen. This morning we continue our study of the post-exilic section of the Bible. There is a section of the Bible known as the post-exilic section, and that's where we are going to be. This section of the Bible is made up of six books. Of course, the Bible itself is one book, but it contains 66 books. And this section of the Bible, of all those 66 books, you get into these six books that are known as the post-exilic books. Three of these post-exilic books are historical narratives. They belong to the genre of a narrative. It's like a, a, a historian writing history. It's historical narrative. So you have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are the historical narrative texts in the six post-exilic texts. The other three are prophecy. They're prophecy genre. I'll say a little something about prophecy genre in just a moment. So we have three post-exilic prophet books, three post-exilic historical narrative books. Together we have these six books, and they are telling one story. It is the story of God's faithfulness to his people and his promises. Hence, I have titled this sermon series, Moving Through the Post-Exilic Texts, as Faithful to Fulfill, because that's exactly what these six books together are reminding God's people in ancient days when they had the ancient Hebrew Bible. This is the Bible that Jesus read. This is the Bible that Jesus studied, that Jesus preached from. And so we come to the text of our Lord this morning, excited to understand this section of Scripture that is telling us about God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to his people. To understand the post-exilic text, though, we need to understand key points in the history of Israel. And I try to highlight these by way of introduction uh, every, every week as we're stepping into these texts, because if you miss something or you, you're not attuned to the history of it, you're, you're going to miss uh, certain elements to the text. So what comes before the post-exile is exile. That's why it's post-exile. So you have post-exile, moving backwards, then you have exile. Before exile, you have establishment. Before establishment, you have election. So uh, moving, moving in chronological order, the story of Israel begins with the election of the historical figure Abram. God chooses. He elects Abram by, by grace. Abram didn't have it coming. He was a pagan, a wanderer, uh, you know, polygamist. He, he was a dark dude, but God elected. God chose to bless him. God came to the undeserving and gave him grace, and he gave him a promise in Genesis that we read about, and he tells him, I'm going to make you into the father of a great people. And at the time he was fatherless, Abram was fatherless, and God names him Abraham, which is like a pluralizing of his name, because he would be, become the father of a great people, the promised people. So, so this election entails this promise, or as we say, covenant, and that covenant entails that Abram would have a progeny who would become a people in a particular place that is the land of promise. So they're promised to be taken to a land, and in that land they would prosper, but it wasn't just for their well-being, you see. God was going to use them to bring blessing to the entire world. Before the story of the election of Abram, you have the story of creation, and the creation rebels against God, and so as a result, the earth is in distress, decay, people die, there's dysfunction, there's darkness, and so the promise that's made to Abram is a part of reversing what took place in the beginning, in the fall of humanity. So the storyline then begins from the very beginning with creation and fall. You move to election. After election, we move, we move into uh, the great Exodus account. Okay, uh, The people of Israel, the descendants of Abram, Abraham, they are in uh, Egypt and they are trapped in slavery. Election to Egypt, Exodus, God liberates them. God shows himself as the great abolitionist who makes an underground railroad and rescues them. Then we move from election to Exodus, Egypt, over here to establishment. In establishment, he takes them to the land of promise. What was promised in the election of Abram comes to fruition in establishment. Election, Exodus, Egypt, establishment. Now, in the establishment, they have a king. The great king David comes, and God builds upon the promise made to Abraham with the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant, that one through the seed of Abram and the seed of David would come and bring the ultimate cosmic renewal of all things through the people in that place. So, so all that's going to happen. That promise is hanging before the people. The people go sideways. They are prone to wander. Indeed, we all are prone to wander as children of Adam and Eve. 
And God uh, allows for the kingdom that was established to go then into exile. There are foreign nations, namely the Assyrians and the Babylonians, who uh, come around the, uh, the land of Israel and they obliterate them. They knock over their temple. It's bad. And so they go into exile. That brings us then to this post-exilic moment where we are with Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and the three prophets that we're studying. This morning we are in the prophet Zechariah. So if you would turn in your Bibles and find your way to Zechariah, that will get you there. And, and, and I'll say more by way of context, just setting this up. It's so important that you have this context. You, you know, the Bible, as I said, it's 66 books, but they're all happening in different eras and different things are going on. And so it's important when you hear the word teached or when you're studying the word to take the time up front and go, okay, what is going on? So we have the election of Abram. We have the exodus is gone. We have the establishment. We have the exile. We have post-exile. So it's like a new reestablishment. They're being brought back to the land. The, the Abrahamic covenant of, of the people and the place being a blessing to the nations, this, this was for the, 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 the people of Israel, and it was for the people of Israel in that place to take on a, a certain status, a certain role, a certain vocation or occupation. The people of Israel were to be a royal priesthood. Look at the text of Exodus 19. Remember the history, election, Exodus, Egypt, establishment. As they're moving to establishment, they are told by the great prophet, if you will obey my voice, speaking for the Lord, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Israel's to be a priesthood. Priests mediate between the creatures and the creator. In particular, fallen creatures, hence they need mediation. They are at odds with. They, they, this is, a, this is a, a, mediate, a mediator you go to when two parties aren't getting along with one another. You bring it to mediation. Israel is to be mediation for the entire planet. This is a part of God restoring what was lost in the fall of humanity. So there, big moments in history. Obviously creation, and then you have election, and then you have this exodus uh, uh, right moment, and then you have this establishment, and then you have exile. Now post-exile, we're coming back. The theme of this, faithful to fulfill, God's bringing it back. What he promised to Abram, what he promised to David, he is going to bring it to pass. Though they are prone to wander, like a great shepherd, he comes with his sovereign staff, and he draws his people back into the land. They come back into the land in three major waves, as I have been showing you in previous installments of this series. In fact, we, we, started, we started with the book of Ezra, which is this historical narrative, and it records for us the first wave and the second wave. We got up to the fifth chapter of the book of Ezra, where he references the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. So we're parked in the historical narrative in Ezra chapter 5. We jumped over to Haggai. We finished studying Haggai, and last week we started getting into Zechariah. And this morning we're picking up where we left off in Zechariah chapter 1 at verse 7. And it is a very interesting text. And because it's a very interesting text this morning, we are going to uh, have a lot going on. So I apologize in advance, but it's going to be a wild ride. And hence, I titled the sermon this morning, Beyond Wildest Dreams. I'm being a little cheeky here because we are going to be studying what some might consider to be dreams. But I submit to you that they are beyond wild dreams. These are to be understood as visions. In fact, if you're reading from an NIV English translation this morning, you will see in Zechariah 1.8, during the night that I had a vision, it is translated. Visions are different than dreams. Visions are uh, unique as well in terms of just being a genre to study. Now, prophecy, this is a text of prophecy. When people hear prophecy, they think about the future and you know, foretelling. But prophets, more than future foretelling, prophets do foretelling. They, they, they take the covenants of God, they take the law of Moses, the Torah, and they speak it forth to the people, to call the people to repentance and faith. So, so, so much of prophecy is that. It's foretelling. But we are going to be in a section this morning that has some cool, you know, future foretelling stuff. And it takes on the shape of, of a vision. The prophet is given a vision. He is given, in fact, eight visions. I was tempted this morning to try and go through all eight 
Uh, you can thank me later. Uh, I'm only going to do half, and, uh, and that it was probably too much. I probably should have just done two. But alas, you know, here we are, and I'm committed, and I hope you are. We're going to cover four of these visions. Again, let me emphasize, these are not dreams. They are something that goes beyond wild dreams. They are visions. Visions are revelations that come from God. Now, a revelation is, is something that you otherwise would not know. A revelation, uh, the word apocalypsis in the Greek, it means an unveiling. It's an opening of the veil. A revelation, if you think of it in terms of personal relationships, is just to reveal something. Uh, you can look at me and you can ascertain certain things about me. You can take guesses about my age, my weight my male pattern baldness and whatnot. You, you, you know, you can watch me for a little bit, maybe peg where I come from or whatever. You, you can pick up things by observing people. But there are certain things about people that you will never know unless they reveal it to you. Uh, as a parent, that is a, a kind of a constant thing when you're looking at your kids and going, what are you thinking about? Or what's going on? What's going on in there? You know, this can happen even in dating or in marriage. Do you like me right now? <laughs> Hopefully that's the dating stage. But, you know, you, you, you wouldn't know otherwise. I need, I need to get in there. I need access to something that I don't have access to. The only way that that happens is by apocalypsis, revelation. Okay, if we, we, we could ascertain that there's a God who exists from looking at science. Science has a strong argument for the existence of God. You can, you can ascertain the existence of God from basic laws of cause and effect and cosmology and logic and whatnot. You, 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 can, you can reason there's a God who exists. But you'll never know who that God is unless he tells you, unless he reveals himself. Unless he says, I mean, one, I'm a he and not an it or a they or something like that. He has to, he has to tell you who he is. That's true of any relationship. You, you meet someone and what do you do? You start asking questions. And, and they don't have to answer you, do they? You know, or they could say something false. Now, in the case of God, praise be to God that he hasn't left us in the dark to figure out who he is. He has given us apocalypsis, revelation. He has said, I am the one true and living God. Further, more intimately, let me tell you who I am. I'm Father, Son, and Spirit in the one God. We have revealed to us in Scripture and through God's people, the church, this reality that there is one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. This, this one God is the God of Abram. This one God is the God of creation. This God who promised to Abram for his people in this plan, we're in the post-exile, but what's going on in the post-exile all sets the stage for this one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father who will be sending his Son to become a man to step into the flesh of Abram and David and fulfill all these promises that we are studying. God has revealed that. Zechariah, through the vision, is giving revelation of this God. Now, we have all experienced dreams. Successions of images, ideas, emotions, sensations, mixed in maybe with memories. They can happen involuntarily or, you know, sometimes you can be awake enough to start controlling the dream and fighting back Freddy Cougar or whatever you got going on in your dreams. And, uh, you know, and psychologists try to psychoanalyze them and new agers try to figure out, you know, what your dreams mean. And, you know, you, you got all kinds of shenanigans when it comes to the topic of, of dreams. But typically dreams last, uh, scientists tell us, anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes. In fact, this is an interesting note as I was digging into the academic dream literature this week. A typical person spends six years of their life dreaming. Just, <laughs> just gone to those goofy dreams. Six years. Bye. You know, uh, some of us have kids that age. Bye. That's just a whole wasted time of, you know, crazy dreaming. Anyway, scientists, psychologists, neurologists, philosophers, they study dreams. But again, we're not dealing with dreams, so none of that matters. This is a vision. Dreams are natural. Visions are supernatural. Visions are apocalypses. They're revealing. They're God saying, let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you what, what I'm doing. Let me tell you what I'm going to do next. Let me tell you about what's coming. Let me tell you about how I feel about you right now. That, that's what goes on in a vision. It's, it's supernatural. Now, visions can overlap with dreams. For example, in, in the book of Daniel, we read about dreams, and we read about visions, and we see there can be overlap in them. But they are to be understood as distinct. Visions are direct communication. Uh, dreams like Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, there could be an indirect revelation that God brings to Daniel for the interpretation of said dream. Daniel, where the, where the prophet, right, and he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and God uses that, but the interpretation is the key part. This isn't new age guessing. 
This isn't some weird Freudian secular you know, projection onto what's going on in your mind when you have dreams. This is God directly communicating to the prophet Daniel about what he was doing in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar in his, in his sleep. But visions don't have to be when you're asleep. Visions, uh, a lot of times, take place when you're wide awake. They can enter into dreams, but they're distinct phenomenon. They're supernatural. They are not natural. And visions involve interpretation from God. God doesn't just give a crazy you know, vision and then leave you like, all right, you go figure it out. God brings interpretation. God communicates through them. And often in the case of this genre of vision, it involves an angelic being who brings interpretation to the human mind that is experiencing the vision. Now, in saying there are these beings, angels, bringing interpretations to visions, I understand that in our modern secular age, that might sound crazy to folks. But contrary to what skeptics might claim, angels are real. That said, people who don't believe in God or the immaterial world, of course, don't have a worldview that can account for the phenomenon of angels, not to mention visions. So if I'm dealing with a skeptic who doesn't believe in angels, that's the least of my concerns. I'd rather talk to him or her about the existence of God first and an immaterial universe in which can account for these things, because otherwise, you know, the, the argument is all for naught. Nonetheless, People attest, even in our modern secular era, of angelic experiences, a phenomenon that can't be dismissed by hard materialism. The growing field of near-death research is filled with recorded angelic encounters during NDEs that include certain things that cooperate by way independently of a reality that is beyond the material realm. Belief in angels is, for that matter, found in most cultures of the world. So this isn't just a matter of, well, your culture does this and your culture does this. this uh, the belief in incorporeal, immaterial beings, minds without bodies, is one that extends time and culture. We have good reason for believing these things. That said, these immaterial or incorporeal beings sometimes manifest uh, corporeally, that is to say physically, materially. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 2, it speaks about how angels can become visible and we might not be aware of it. And so the admonition to hospitality comes to the author of the Hebrews who says, you know, you could entertain angels and maybe not even be aware. But sometimes God opens our eyes to see these incorporeal or immaterial beings. I think, for example, of the great passage in 2 Kings, chapter 6, when Elijah, the servant, has his eyes opened and he sees all of the angels around him. And so, too, as we step into the text and we're going to encounter angels and visions in an immaterial realm, and we come this morning to worship an immaterial being, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, let me remind you that we are not alone. There are angels all around us if we would but have eyes to see. Now, I want us to have eyes to see the text of Scripture this morning to ground all of these things, and hopefully this introduction st sets the stage. We have the context. Now let's move into the content. Zechariah. Chapter 1, verse 7. On the 24th day of the, seventh, of the 11th month, excuse me, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. Now, let's pause for a second and kind of note some things about the text. The ancients told time by uh, noting who was on the throne. So, so they let you know, hey, Darius is in his second year on the throne, and that lets you know that this is taking place in 519 B.C. They, he notes the, the month of Shabbat. This lets us know that this is taking place in February. The 24th day, that corresponds to the 15th. So this is February the 15th, 519 B.C. It is a, a, it is a few months after what we studied, where we left off last week in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And all of this is letting us know that in that post-exile, as God was bringing them back in those waves, where in the beginning waves, as I showed you on the graph, the people were being brought back to establish themselves as the priesthood. They were being brought back to build the worship center of the temple. The temple would be the place where Israel would have mediation with God, where the nations would see this mediation, and where the world would begin to taste the renewal of what is to come. The, the, the paradise that was lost in this story that I shared with you in the beginning, you're, you're starting to see it reversed in the place of the temple. The, the, the God who cast man out of the garden is manifesting himself once again in this temple as like a new garden. It's a porthole of the heavens to the earth where humanity gets a taste of the glory that is to come when he raises the dead and his kingdom is established finally in the earth 
and the earth is renewed and restored and all things are brought to rest and peace and shalom in him. And so they're brought back for this grand task, but the people aren't on mission, as we would say. There is mission creep that sets in. So as we read Ezra, that historical account, we see uh, already the, uh, God is giving apocalypsis and saying, let me tell you about myself, let me tell you about how I feel. I don't feel too good about what y'all are doing. I brought you back to the land. I'm faithful to fulfill. You were called to build the temple, and you guys are doing other stuff. You're, you're, you're kicking it at Ikea. You're getting meatballs and carpets and whatever. Does Ikea, I guess they do have carpets, and, and you're just hooking your houses up. I use that as an illustration because the prophet actually goes after that. He says, you guys are hooking up your houses and you're not building the house of the Lord. Like, your priorities are a mess. And so, so here the prophet steps back in. We've already had one prophet come, Haggai. God has to send another prophet because they're not listening. And in that, you know, this isn't a shaking finger from God. It's a stern word from God to be sure. But this is the grace of God. You didn't, you didn't listen to Haggai. I'm going to send Zechariah to you. And I'm going to do so on February the 15th, 519. Scholars note that this is likely not a coincidence here, that the vision that we're going to study, it occurs one week prior to New Year's Day for the Jewish people. And, and New Year's Day, when the temple building and restoration projects are usually commenced, that's when that takes place. And so here comes a revelation at that moment when commencement should be taking place. But we can't do commencement because y'all haven't done your job. It is worth noting here uh, that with regard to the time marker of Darius, as we saw in Haggai and in Zechariah, as we see in Ezra, Darius is a pagan ruler. He's not a Jewish king. And so, so that is a telling statement if you know your Hebrew Bible and the historical narratives, because they, they would mark history by, by talking about the Jewish kings that were on the throne and what was going on. But we don't have a king, do we? We don't have a temple, do we? How do we mark time? We're, we're going to have to use the pagans so our readers know when this vision took place, that itself is a, a, another indictment on the people. February, we should be done. Commencement should be happening. Uh, Zechariah's got to tell us it's happening during Darius because we don't even have a king that we can make reference to. In fact, some scholars believe that Darius at this time was marching to Egypt in 519, right around this time, to secure his renewed loyalty. And, and that the preparations of the army for his march were a source of concern for the people of Judah. So at this time, as he's invoking the name of Darius, that also is a, is a powerful moment. I shared in last week's sermon, you know, different rulers that can conjure different feelings. In the reign of Biden, in the reign of Trump, in the reign of Reagan. And depending where you are on the political spectrum, it can sort of stir things. For the ancient people to say, in the reign of Darius, that, that brings up certain things for them. And I want you to kind of have a, have a feel of the anxiety, of the fear, of the confusion that's going on at the time when the vision comes to the confused to bring clarity. Verse 8, I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Okay, so this is the first vision. I shared with you that there's eight. I'm, I'm trying to get through four this morning. Um, but all of these are kind of one vision, but for sake of time, we're just going to Take a bite into the first half. So vision number one, a man among the myrtle trees. So there's a dude kicking it in a ravine. He's got some trees around him and some horses around him. Now, naturally, trees like to be in ravines because ravines have water in them. So that's kind of like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, trees, ravine, horses, a guy. That's all normal stuff. But this isn't a normal ravine. This isn't just trees kicking it by water. This isn't natural. There's something supernatural that's taking place here. I'm going to quote in just a moment two of my own personal Hebrew professors that I had in seminary, uh, Dr. Golden Gay and Dr. Scalise, who wrote this. The words translated here for ravine, metzuzala, it hints at a supernatural locale, a point of contact between the heavenly and the earthly realms. Recall, the land of promise was to be a porthole of the heavens. That's why the temple is to be there. He's standing in some sort of sacred ground in this vision. Or perhaps he's not standing on ground, he's in some heavenly ground. We think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about being caught up to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4. He says he couldn't discern if it was in the body or out of the body, the Apostle Paul says. And in the same chapter, he also speaks, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, of visions, I quote, and revelations from the Lord, end quote. 
So visions overlap sometimes with these supernatural encounters that particular prophets have in particular special moments in the history of God's people. It's not entirely clear. Paul said, even experiencing it himself, and what Zechariah gives us is like, is, did he get caught up somewhere? What's going on? But what is clear is this ravine is supernatural. The myrtle trees, they grow wild in the north of Israel, in Carmel and Galilee and the Golan Heights. Myrtle is often spoken of in Hebrew literature, in particular in the prophets. I think of Isaiah the prophet. He has a prophecy that involves myrtle trees in Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 55. The myrtle tree is a picture of God's people Israel. It's kind of a natural symbol, and so it's a, kind of a fitting imagery here. The God of Israel wants to speak to his people, and you have imagery of his people. It's a very beautiful tree, fragrant. Let me show you a picture of it. It grows five uh, petal white flowers on it. They, they smell wonderful. They even grow little round berries that are black and blue. Sometimes the little berries can appear as yellow amber. Speaking of yellow amber, black and blue, the text talks about colors here, specifically the colors of the horses. Scholars usually spill a lot of ink talking about color equivalents in our modern English translations. I'm going to show you just a quick look at it. Don't worry, I'm not going <laughs> to say much about it, but you can see how scholars geek out on the range of meanings this is taken from a, an academic paper from a scholar at Duke University who did an analysis on the genetical probability of horse coats in the ancient world, comparing it with Hebrew words for the colors, which Hebrew words, by the way, for colors are very limited. And so this is a place where, where scholars really geek out. Anyway, we don't need to geek out because it's absolutely not significant to the vision at all. And I will show you in a moment. But it's first worth noting that the four horses that we're going to see in the text here also mirror some horses that we meet at the end of the revelation of scripture in particular in the book of revelation the apocalypse of john revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 and here you can look at that while i'm, I'm talking so that we don't lose ground but suffice it to say you see some horses there with some colors that match now it, it matches it mirrors it's not entirely clear if i were preaching through revelation i might talk about the white horsemen maybe being the antichrist and these being a uh, 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 fake copies, knockoffs of Zechariah, and there could be a lot of geeky stuff we could do, but we got to keep flowing in Zechariah. There's a man among the myrtle trees. The man is actually not a man. He's an angelic figure. In verse 9, we see the Hebrew term malak is used, which is used for angels. The word angel, malak, just means a messenger. Incidentally, malak can be used for men. It can be used for human messengers, as well as it is used for angelic ones, and we will see that this one here is angelic. This man is given a specific task from God. And in fact, uh, God has assigned an angel as well in this scene to Zechariah for purposes of helping him understand the tasks that are given to the man among the myrtle trees and the task that's being given to Zechariah and the task that's being given to the people and having this uh, revelation given to them. So we see angelic interpretation, which I was talking about a moment earlier. That's one of the differences of vision. It involves God giving you revelation to let you know what's going on in the vision. Angelic interpretation takes place in visions inside of scripture. I think of the prophet uh, Daniel, who I made reference to earlier. He encounters the angel Gabriel. Let me put Daniel uh, chapter 8, verse 16 in front of you. And he says, I heard a man's voice behind the banks of Ulai, and, he called, and, and, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. This is, incidentally, Gabriel, the same angel who appeared to the priest to announce John the Baptist's birth, uh, another Zechariah, by the way, in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, as well, Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary to announce Jesus' conception in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Zechariah, Zechariah doesn't name the man or the angel. Uh, maybe this is Gabriel, we don't know, but on the note of nomenclature, it's, it's worth noting that Daniel describes Gabriel in verse 15 of Daniel chapter 8 is having the appearance of man and here in verse 16 that's in front of you he has the voice of man sometimes angels as I already shared with you with that reference to Hebrews uh, sometimes they appear corporeally materially sometimes they appear as as men sometimes they appear as beastly creatures inside of the scripture they're 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 powerful beastly sometimes they're winged sometimes they're not winged they just look like men they're masculine uh, military uh, figures. The angel Gabriel explained the prophetic visions to Daniel and the angel that we meet here in the text of Zechariah will do just that for Zechariah. And when he explains the vision to, to Zechariah about the man and the myrtle trees, he isn't going to say anything about the color of the horses having any significance. That's why I said it doesn't matter. Draw your eyes back at the text. Verse 9. Then I said, 
my, my Lord, what, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those from whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. The angels were sent by God to patrol the earth. In the Hebrew, it is the word halak. It's, it's not like they're not just roaming or whatever. It's an, it's an intentional patrol that has been given to them. They are on patrol. And then verse 11, so they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. These angels that are on patrol are now answering to this other angels who's described as the angel of the Lord. The forest is filled with angels. Distinct from this angelic rider who's on a red horse, maybe riders on the other horses, distinct is this other angel, the angel of the Lord. The other horses, they, they appear to have riders, so we've got at least four angels who are there, and, and maybe the man is a, a, a distinct one, but now we've got another angel there, the angel of the Lord. The text is unclear if the man, in verse 10, is the angel of the Lord, or this is somewhat different. It's kind of ambiguous in terms of who's speaking, but suffice it to say, this figure, the angel of the Lord, is one that we meet inside of the Hebrew Bible, and people spill a lot of ink over this angel appears in places in the Bible in a matter that is theophanic. Theo is the word for God. Ophany is a, is a word that's used for an appearance. The angel of the Lord, when he appears inside of the scripture, he's manifesting some special presence of God. Just like the temple manifested some special presence of God. It's a theophanic encounter with God. And so, so often when you see him inside of the scripture, when he speaks, he just speaks first person for God. This, this angel is, uh, is sometimes, in fact, as he's speaking first person for God, a lot of times he's, he's, he's just called God because the word is, is in him and he speaks forward as God's voice. Notice in verse 9, my Lord, what are these? Sometimes the angel of the Lord is just called Lord. Sometimes angels are called Lords. And so there's, there's something a lot of times there when people are interpreting these texts where they say, this angel's a special theophanic encounter with God because he, he somehow manifests the word of God in him. Uh, that, that said, a lot of uh, Christian interpreters, this, you know, after the time of Christ, would look at these theophanic passages and say, these are Christophanic. Maybe that's the, the word who's speaking at that time. I think it's unnecessary to split the operations of God and the persons of God in that way. It's, just, it's a broad theophanic counter. That angel is, is somehow uniquely representing God. To be sure, it's still an angel. The angel is not God, but there's something unique about that angel. As an as a, as a illustration of this, if you want to see the, the wording play out, go home this week and read Genesis chapter 32, and you'll see where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord, and the angel is called God, and the angel is called uh, 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 an angel, and it's being used interchangeably. Now, I, I, in, in order to, you know, to teach things, I use illustrations. And so the illustration I use to help people understand the angelology and theophany on this is, is right here, my cell phone, right? If all of a sudden it started going off and I said, oh, hang on, you guys, it's Erica. Right, that's my wife. Hang on, you guys, it's Erica. How rude of her to call me in the middle of the sermon. Maybe something's happened. Hang on, it's Erica. Y you all know what I'm saying, right? right? You want to say, Pastor Matt, that's not Erica. That's your cell phone. No, no, no. Well, yeah, it's my cell phone, but, it, but it's Erica, right? So the angel of the Lord is like, it's God. Yeah, but it's the cell phone, you know. And, and, and very much, very much is a cell phone. It's the mouthpiece of God. When that angel is speaking, the voice of God is coming through that angel. So this is a, this is a very powerful encounter that's going on here. Verse 11. So, so they answered. And the angel of the Lord, this theophanic creature, is standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. So the angels have obeyed orders of patrolling the earth, and they're reporting back to their, to their watch commander to say, the, the earth is still, right? Everything, everything, is, everything is calm. There's no sirens. There's no, you know, everything's calm. It's calm. There's no calls that, that, that we're responding to, no 911 calls taking place. Everything is calm. Now, this is likely a political commentary on Darius's empire because Darius, the ruler, was very successful. And as a result of him squashing everyone, people weren't fighting back and things were actually quite peaceful. I shared with you last week the Darius seal. It is an ancient propaganda piece. You see him on his chariot. He's got his bow. The hegemony of Darius and the, Peri uh, the Persian uh, powers, they created a pre-Pax Romana. 
an age of peace. Darius beat Babylon, the, the, you know, the big bully on the block. He just knocked, he knocked them out. And so now everything's chill. Everything's just like kicking it, you know, the, the Persians, everything's cool, everything's fine, everything's still, the angels report back. I was uh, just randomly coming across some fascinating history uh, just yesterday uh, relative to Darius and uh, also pizza. I had to share it, of course, with Landon because he is our connoisseur of pizza, uh, being the owner of Pytrini Pizza, which is the best pizza I've ever had in my life. If you haven't been there, please go and support the cause. But uh, pizza is delicious. Who doesn't like pizza? Incidentally, uh, a lot of historians uh, who look at food history actually trace pizza back to Darius. There is historical record of the Persian armies of King Darius, who we're reading about in this passage, who would take their metal battle shields, lay them horizontally in the sun, get them really hot, and roll out dough and use their shields to, to bake them. And they would put cheese on top and dates on top, and it would melt, and they would eat it. Now, I know you're thinking dates. That's gross. But, you know, they didn't have tomatoes over in that corner, and I'll spare you the history on how they get tomatoes and whatnot. Uh, but who are we to judge, those of us who like pineapples on pizza? But anyway, right? So dates and cheese. It just got controversial there. Pine the pineapple debate. Uh, like, what an, what an awesome empire. You guys are making pizza. Like, so the angels are like, yeah, you know, there's just guys kicking it in pizza. Everything's cool. You know, Darius goes down in the sands of time as, as a very successful king. Here's a, another piece from ancient history for you to see. It's 520, Things are chill. The angel of the Lord, verse 12, said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, which have been indignant these 70 years? You've brought them back out of exile for a period of 70 years. They've come back, and things are rough for the exiles, right? Like, the Persians got peace and pizza and all the rest, but look at the post-exiles. Things aren't good for them, Lord. Things aren't good. Think about the prophecies of Jeremiah. Think about the book of Lamentations. So depressing. It's just on and on about how bad things are. You think about everything that Israel had been through for all of those years. Jer Jeremiah, the so-called major prophet, right? He laments, he laments that exile. The minor prophets, right? They, they, beginning with Hosea, they, they, they start this way. Hosea reveals uh, and says this in, in Hosea 1.6, without compassion, Racham, from the house of Israel, God, where's your compassion? He uses the same word that the angel uses here in verse 12. Where's your compassion? What's going on? The Persians are eating pizza and they have their peace, but your people are suffering. Where are you, God? And the Lord answered the angel, verse 13. The angel was speaking with me with gracious words and comforting words. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's as good that it's gracious and comforting. God is going to bring grace and comfort. God's going to tell him, I'm in control Draw your eyes at verse 14. So the angel who was speaking said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Now, this is, uh, this of, of course, is not, we don't read this literally. Uh, in the sense that uh, these people have done something that is catching God by surprise, because God's omniscient and he knows all things. But God, uh, and I shared last week about uh, anthropopathic language and what have you. He says, I was a little angry and they furthered the disaster. The pagans, the Syrian Babylon, they took it further. They did far worse. The Pharaoh, he, what he did to the people of Israel, they took it far further. I brought my people under discipline to be sure, but they, they took it beyond what was, what, 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 what was called for in this. And I am going to bring recompense upon their heads. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, I will return, draw your eyes at verse 16, to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, again proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. God br brings words of encouragement. He speaks of his jealous love. He is a passionate lover. He, he speaks of a measuring line in the ancient days. That's how you would survey land with a measuring line. You stretch out a measuring line. You have a plumb line, which, which has a little pointed weight uh, at the bottom of the line, and you use that for measuring things up. There's cool art, artwork that's done on this, so I'll put a couple of pictures here so that you can see this cool artwork um, that, that takes place. Oh, my slides are all over the place. I'm sorry. Uh, 
Oh, well, I did have a slide. It managed to disappear. Anyway, he brings encouragement. They, they, they stretch this line out. The, me the meaning of this is, is simple. The meaning is that God is faithful. God is bringing compassion upon Israel. He is going to have a recompense. He will bring his anger upon the nations. The angel explains the, the, the dudes on the horses and the myrtle trees and the ravine. What's going on here? This picture is telling you that God is faithful. His compassion is on Israel. His anger is upon the nations. So there's a man, there's an angel, there's the riders, there's the field, the watch commander. They receive the report. God's reconnaissance is, is brought. The earth is at peace. But that, that peace has not come from the promise. That peace did not come because the nations were being good to Israel. Recall, recall the Abrahamic covenant. Recall what we read, and I'll put it in front of you in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, right, I will bless those who bless you. The world is not at peace because they were blessing Israel. The, the world is at peace because they were using oppressive powers. The peace didn't come from the promise. Jerusalem, it literally means a city of peace, and it's laying in ruins. What are you doing, Lord? He gives Zechariah a vision, and he says, I'm faithful. My compassion is on you, and they're going to get it. They're going to get it. Now we come to the next vision, the four horns and the four craftsmen. Draw your eyes back at the text. We've got to pick up time here. Verse 18, I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold, there were four horns. Verse 19, so I said to the angel who's speaking with me, what, what, what are these four horns? And he answered me and he said, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Horns were used in that culture in the Hebrew Bible as symbols of strength. As well, they're used in scripture to speak of pagan kings and their kingdoms. We think of the ten horns in Daniel chapter 7. Or the dragon with the ten horns in Revelation 12. The pagan gods of the day are depicted in art. Here, let me show you a, uh, a piece from history of the god Anu with his horned cap. I, I see that and I think of a dunce cap, which it is fitting to false gods and their dunce caps. But they would read those as like, oh, he's powerful. The horn is a sign of power. The pagans, of course, saw their kings as divine figures. So there's like a, like a power that's in this. The figures, they, 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 they were responsible for scattering the people of Israel. So these four horns are symbols for those who scattered Israel. We know of, of Babylon. We know of Assyria. Other prophecy students think that the four horns might parallel what we see in the prophecy of Daniel and the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the, 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 the Greco-Roman Empire. Other students of prophecy just see the four horns as the four corners of the earth, maybe. But the, the, the angel helps with the interpretation. Verse 20, the Lord shows me four craftsmen. This is the second vision. I see four horns. I see four craftsmen. Verse 21, I said, uh, what, what's going on with the craftsmen? What are, what are they coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. And these are the craftsmen that come to terrify them to throw the horns of the nations off who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. There is a day of reckoning that is coming. The four horns are going to be brought down by the four craftsmen. And in, in that day, craftsmen are people of great power. Craftsmen are skilled artisans from the royal courts. They build with wood and stone and brick and metal. They know how to build and they know how to do demo. And they are going to demo those horns. We see imagery in the, in the Hebrew Bible of horns being torn down. So we understand the meaning of the text here in Zechariah. For example, Psalm 75, let me show you verse 10 here. All the horns of the wicked will be cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Jeremiah chapter 48, we read of God's judgment on the various lands and the horn of Moab being cut off. Similarly, Zechariah envisions these horns and they're cut off. The horns that scattered the people, the, the horns that, that, that punished my people, the horns that, that caused my people to suffer, they have a judgment that is coming. Those who were scattered will be shattered. In the terms of the imagery here, it's also worth noting that horns uh, involve imagery of altars. So we read, for example, in Psalm 118, verse 27 of this, and there's an image of an altar with the four horns. So this, could, this vision could have kind of a pun to it that he's tearing down those fake horns and establishing the, the, the altar in the place of worship. Now the meaning of all of this is simple. God is faithful. He will restore and protect his people as well. Their enemies will be judged. So the interpretation of the second vision is a lot like the first one. The nations will get away with nothing. Judgment day is coming. The last days are coming. It is worth noting that in rabbinic sources, 
the, the, the ancient rabbis and the Jewish literature before the time of Christ, if you're talking about Babylonian Talmud or uh, a medieval a rabbi or, or, or a Dead Sea Scrolls, they interpret the text of Zechariah as the last days. There's not time for me to get into all of them, but the ancient Jewish sources before the time of Jesus read and interpreted Zechariah as, as talking about a coming Messiah who was going to raise the dead and who was going to restore the temple. The ancient hope of the people was for a Messiah to come. And the rabbis from the time of Zechariah all the way up to the time of Christ interpreted these texts this way. So it is no wonder that Jesus himself, the great Jewish rabbi, would interpret these texts this way and his apostles would appeal to these texts in talking about the final days. Now, we know that we wait in those days. At the beginning of service today, we read from uh, one of the sections of Jesus' prophetic teachings. He speaks this way, of a temple, of abomination, of desolation, of coming back to the land, of gathering the people from the four corners of the earth, the people of Israel, to return. Now let's get back into the text. We've, uh, we, we've got to make up for time here. Let's jump into the third vision. The third vision involves a surveyor and a measuring line. Then I lifted up my eyes, verse 1, and I looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand, and so I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is, and to see how long it is. Okay, earlier where I said I had a picture, I think this is where I tucked it. Check it out. Some cool artwork on, there it is, there it is. The cool artwork of measuring lines, like angelic beings. If you Google this stuff, uh, you can find all kinds of cool artwork. But so he's, he's measuring out the land. The, these angels are measuring it out. And something cool we read here. Let's keep reading. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me, was going out, and another angel was coming to meet him, and he said to him, Run, speak to that young man. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and the cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be to the glory in, in her midst. Ho there! Ho there! Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the four heavens, declares the Lord. God is calling those exiles, remember I shared with you that the post-exile waves, that first wave was like nobody. People were like, man, I'm staying in Babylon. Babylon's cool. I'm staying, you know, I'm staying, I'm eating pizza with Persians. Why do I want to go back to, to, to there? You know what I mean? Like, everything's knocked over. That's going to be hard work. It'll be much easier to live over here. The dollar goes further. You know, people are nicer. Why do I want to go back there and do that? The Lord cries out and says, you, you guys are, are going to come back. You're going to come back. I'm going to bring you back. The land of the north. That's Babylon. You, you come back. Ho, Zion. Ho. Sorry, forgive me. Ho, Thundercats. Ho. Right? When I read that, I think of Thundercats. Ho. But seriously, like in, in the ancient Hebrew, ho is a, it's a lament. It's like a, it, it's, it would be closer to our woe, right? Whoa. This is like, hear, hear God crying out. Hear God crying out to his people, woe. Hear God crying out to the nations, woe. See God's love. He, he, see how he, how he describes his, his, his people. Escape, verse 7. Those of you who are living with the daughter of Babylon, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory has been sent me against the nations, which will plunder you, for he touches you, touches the apple of his eye. God calls Israel the apple of his eye. See his love. This is an idiom for something that's cherished. For behold, verse 9, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. That, that measuring line with the angels, the point of it is, you're not going to need a measuring line. The measuring line for borders, where are we going to put our walls? I know that's a very controversial subject right now, but uh, you know, where do we put walls? Like nations, and I'm not, make, I'm not trying to be cheeky here and make statements about wall policies today. In the ancient world, if you don't have walls, you don't have a city. Uh, now, whether or not you think that's true in the modern world, I'm not making any comments. <laughs> but in the ancient world, if you don't have walls, you don't have a city. Now, the angels, that measuring line is go, where are the walls going to be? And God says, you guys, you don't, you're not going to need walls. I will be the wall. I will be a firewall, in fact, for the Lord is a consuming fire. The Holy of Holies that filled the temple will fill the borders of the land. This is clearly eschatological. This is last days type stuff where, where God returns his glory to the earth. He says in verse 10, Sing for joy, be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. O daughter of, in that day, these are terms of the last days. 
Draw your eyes at the text, verse 11. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they will become my people, and I will dwell in their midst, and you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as a portion of his holy land, and again he will choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused with his holy habitation. Now the meaning of the surveyor and the measuring line is this last days. And so this is telling us that God is, here I'll put it in front of you, faithful. All the visions are telling us that. God is sovereignly working out a plan to bring them to the land, to restore the temple, and to bless the world through the people. That's Genesis 12. That's Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to come among you. I'm going to, to, many nations, verse 11, they're going to join. This is the messianic era. The Messiah is going to come. Ancient Jewish interpretation is this. The Messiah comes. He restores the temple. They become a blessing to the nations. Everyone starts coming and starts getting saved. We know that Jesus came for that. We know that he came to the temple. We know the temple was corrupted. We know of his unrequited love. We know that he was rejected. And he is, he is instituted in this age and in between times where he's drawing the nations to himself. And that's why we got a bunch of Gentiles in the corner of Los Angeles worshiping the Jewish Messiah and the God of Israel because he's drawing the nations to himself as a foretaste of what is to come when Christ raptures his church, when Christ returns for his people Israel, when the 144,000 are gathered and his kingdom comes. And that section that we read in Matthew 24, when those things take place, it is worth noting that in Israel today, in Jewish theology today, there is the hope of bayat hamikdash hashalishi, which literally means the house, the holy, the third. The people of Israel today are waiting for a third temple. In fact, if you go to Israel, you will see the Temple Institute and the Temple Mount, Eretz Yisrael, the faithful movement. Here's pictures of those. They are literally building the, the, the next temple. There are people that are ready to do this. Now, of course, there is a huge problem with regard to that plan because on the place where the temple once stood now stands, because of uh, uh, Muslim conquerors, uh, two really historic Islamic structures, which are 13th centuries old now, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. So if we're going to build a new temple there, that's going to literally create World War III. Now, there are some scholars that are suggesting that perhaps the temple wasn't to be built there. It's just a little north of the Dome of the Rock, in which case we could build the temple right next to it. And prophecy students go crazy talking about what could happen, what should happen, and whatnot. I want to tether myself to just what the text of Scripture says. And what we do know is that the Lord Jesus will gather his church. The Lord Jesus will gather the sheep of Israel. His one people will be one. He will return. His will will be done. The final vision, quickly. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. So the fourth vision is the vision of Joshua, the high priest. He is standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing at the right hand to accuse him. This line alone, oh man, there's so much to say, and we don't have time. But Joshua, his name is Yeshua. This is the name of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua, Jesus. The overtones and the parallels here, they're all over the place. But in historical context, Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, he's the first high priest of the remnant who comes back in this post-exile. We read about him in Ezra chapter 3. Well, in the vision, Yeshua is there, and, and in, in the vision, Zechariah sees him, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord, and in comes Satan. Now, uh, Satan is not a proper noun inside of the Hebrew Bible. Satan is not a proper noun. It's not a name. Like English, Hebrew doesn't attach a definite article, the, to proper and personal pronouns, right? Like we don't say the Matt Jones or the Pastor Tony or whatever. I, 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 I say that because the definite article, ha, is actually here in the text. I might even write it there. Uh, in fact, uh, a, a matter of like 27 occurrences of Satan in the Bible, ha, the, the Satan in the Hebrew. So it says the Satan comes. Uh, the, the, the word there, it literally means one who acts as an adversary. So he's a figure who acts as an adversary, to be sure to be tied, of course, in the history of interpretation, to the serpent in Eden with the fall of man. He is the accuser of the brethren. He, he comes, he steps in, and he's ready to pounce. We read of him as well in the book of Job, and I'll put it in front of you here in the beginning of Job, and you read about how the Satan comes, and how the Satan you know, you know, opens his fat mouth and, and challenges accusation against God's people. 
The Satan appears here in Zechariah. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I think of the book of Jude, and there's an encounter with Satan and the angels, right? And, 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 and the angels must rebuke in the name of the Lord. Here you have the word of the Lord rebuking him in the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In the vision, the, the, the Satan is accusing Yeshua, who synecdotally represents the people of Israel. The, the priest represents the people. He accuses them. Oh, they, yeah, yeah, there's a reason they were in exile. They're good for nothing. And you brought them back to the land, and look at what they're doing now. And God cuts it off and says, no, shut your mouth. No, I rebuke you. Notice the Lord didn't tell Joshua to go wash up. The Lord didn't stand on the side of the darkness and say, you know what, Joshua, he's making a good point. The accuser would have wanted Joshua to feel that weight and heap that guilt and shame on him, realizing that he was unclean before the holy God. The accuser would have wanted him to, to, to go wash himself up and then come back to God. I am reminded of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. We read there of how we will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. God says, I rebuke you. Joshua, you don't worry about cleaning yourself up. That's what I have come to do. Salvation has always been through grace. Salvation has always been the work of God. People who are dirty can't clean themselves up. They just smear the mud around. We need someone to wash us when we are unclean. And the promise of Scripture is that God will do just that. The angel of the Lord says, rebuke you. He has chosen that's what salvation is. It's God's decision. It's God's prerogative. It's God's election. God has chosen to do this. Rebuke you. Now verse 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. And he's standing before the angel. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head and a clean turban on his head and clothed with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Yeshua, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and you will have charge of all of my courts. And I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. The priest is cleansed. He's a symbol of the people. He's mediating for the people. So the people are cleansed. And there's a big ceremony. Now listen, verse 8. Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol, the text says. For behold, that's what visions are, they're symbols. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. Now, the Hebrew Bible uses this phrase, the branch, to speak of the Messiah. Jewish interpretation before the time of Jesus reads it this way. Uh, think of the book of Isaiah. I'll put it in front of you. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. The branch has messianic overtones. It connects messianic expectations and connects it to this figure in prophecy known as the suffering servant. Zechariah brings the branch, my servant, in. In chapter 6 in Zechariah, we'll see when we get there, the branch of the Lord is spoken of, and it's all tied together. The branch of God, the suffering of God, all of this imagery, the branch of righteousness that refers to the seed of David in Jeremiah 23, all of that imagery, it's a symbol. It's a symbol. That's what it says in verse 8. And of course, we see that symbolism on this side of the cross pointing to our Lord and Savior, the Christ, who is the branch that was to come. This announcement to Joshua and his fellow priests presents three different images of the coming Messiah. He's priest, he's branch, he's stone. Uh, we will study the priest in chapter 6, so I'll save that for next week. But notice, noti notice this imagery of the stone as we continue, verse 9, for behold the stone that I've set before Joshua. Stone, just like branch, has all this messianic imagery. Of course, we read inside of scripture, I'll put some passages in front of you of the Messiah as the cornerstone, the stumbling stone, the rejected stone, the smitten stone, the smiting stone. At his first advent, Jesus was the stumbling stone to his people Israel who rejected him, but he became the foundation stone for the church. And at his second advent, he will smite the kingdoms of the world and establish his glorious kingdom. Verse 9, for behold the stone I have set before Joshua, and on the stone are seven eyes. Ever pick up a rock that has seven eyes of it? Just drop it. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, uh, this is crazy. What's going on with this rock? It has seven eyes. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, 
the Lamb of God, who is the Son slain, is said to have seven eyes. Again, you've never seen a lamb with seven eyes. Don't eat those. But it's imagery here to speak of the omniscience of God. He sees all things. He knows all things. As well, the stone has overtones of the foundation stone of the temple. The building stones are rectangular. So if you imagine a rectangle, it has six sides to it. A rectangle, a brick, has six sides to it. And so reference to it having a seven-sidedness or seven eyes to this would suggest perfection in the temple that is to come. It could also be imagery of a priestly stone. We read in Exodus chapter 28 and 39 that the chief priests had stones that were attached to their priestly garments. And the names of the sons of Israel are engraved on the stones of the priestly garment. So look at the text. It says, Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. So then Exodus 28, imagery of in, inscribing the names of Israel and thinking of the imagery of the priest, that also is a part of this vision of, of Zechariah. And, and, and draw your eyes back at the end of verse 9, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in that day. That brings us to the fourth vision. What does the fourth vision mean? God is faithful. God is faithful. That's what all the visions mean. But further, it means that the kingdom of darkness will not win, for God will cleanse and close his people to be a priestly nation again, and he will send his own Messiah, the stone, the priest, the branch to them. In that day, verse 10, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under the vine and to sit under the fig tree. We saw this morning in Matthew 24, the fig tree is the symbol of Israel. There will be shade and rest and harvest. God's promises to his people will come to pass. That brings us to the final point on the outline, covenant. Covenant is promise. The temple was going to be beyond their wildest dreams. It was going to take place in the future. They were building a temple that would welcome the stone, that would welcome the branch, that would welcome the priest, the Messiah of Israel who would come to that temple. Three final points as I land the ship. The first point is silence. We read in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 13, Be silent, all flesh before the Lord. As we sit before the text in this age, we too should be humbled to just pause and just come in repentance and faith this Sunday. We've, we've all had a week that has left us soiled. Like the priest, we stand before God dirty. And the voice of the enemy will come at you sideways to tell you you're not worthy. This cup that we're about to drink, you're not worthy to take it. Well, that's fine, devil, because this picture tells me I am. In the name of the Lord, I am. By this picture, I have been cleansed. All flesh, all flesh be silent, the text says. And then Joshua was clothed as he stood before the angel. His gear, his gear, his gear, they wouldn't have thought it was dirty. Right? The priest's outfit was like the Versace of the day. Like, you see a priest walking, and you're like, oh, man, I want one of those outfits. No, too bad. You know, you can't, you can't get these. People would have looked at his outfit and said, it's not dirty, his outfit is fresh. It reminds us of Isaiah 64, verse 6, that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. We need to be silent before the Lord. Secondly, we need to be called in service. Zechariah is calling the people to serve. Get in there and build the temple. The imagery of the scorched twig that, that, that was taken out there that we read about, Right, Israel, you've been brought out of exile. You, a little twig, this little twig, you've been brought out. But this twig will become the mighty arm of the Lord. He will establish them. They will be called to service in the land of promise. That's why God has them there. The temple was in ruins. The town was scarred from exile. These visions come to say, look, I am going to accomplish this work. I'm inviting you to participate. The final point is the point of second coming. Zechariah 3 promises, I will remove iniquity from the land on that day. Indeed, this cup is a picture of that day. What day? Good Friday. When Jesus died for his people Israel and the elect of God in Christ, the iniquity of the land was taken away on that day. John 1 tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. It was unrequited love, but that was the plan. The suffering servant would be rejected, the, the stone would be stumbled upon, but the branch of the Lord would come. And, and so now we find ourselves in a kind of new post-exile era where we are building the temple, the church of Jesus Christ, awaiting the one who will come and build the ultimate temple in the land of promise. Let's take the cup and celebrate the true tabernacle of God, the true temple of God, the one who was enfleshed. This wasn't a theophanic vision. This wasn't him appearing as a man. He became a man. 
We celebrate that as we eat the bread. Jesus came to the Apostle Paul in a special vision. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're remembering him. We're remembering not just what he did on the cross of Calvary, but what he's doing in our lives today. Blessed be his name. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it, also in remembrance of me. Let's remember what he has done for us. The Apostle Paul went on to say that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is the final point on the outline, second coming. He's coming again. He is coming again. The name Zechariah means God remembers. Praise be to God that he remembers. He doesn't need reminders. He doesn't need post-its. He doesn't need a Google calendar. You're never going to have a moment with him where he's like, did I say I was going to do that? You, the, you know, the awkward friend you lent 20 bucks to or whatever who seems to have forgotten every time you go out. You, know? you don't have to remind him. He always remembers. He is always good to his promises. And he has promised all who hear this word today to be saved, to be saved if you repent of your sin and cry out to him, Father, forgive me. Cry out to him, Father, I trust you and the ultimate sacrifice that has come for me. There is salvation, iniquity to be removed in him. And life in him is beyond your wildest dreams. Let's pray and sing to him. Father, we thank you for your word, these crazy visions that you gave to your servant Zechariah for the ability for us to have the resources to be able to dig into these and understand them. Lord, we thank you for that uh, angelic interpreter to your servant Zechariah. We thank you for the great teachers that you have blessed your people Israel and the church with uh, who passed down this meaning to us today, that you are faithful. Receive these songs of worship now as we uh, wind down our service with singing and prayer. Lord, move among us as we sing, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.